Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, everybody, this is Kai. I want to share something cool with you from my colleague Tracy Hunt. Tracy is a correspondent here at WNYC Studios, and she's been working on a project about modern-day beauty standards and how they came to be. You may remember hearing from Tracy on an earlier episode of our show in conversation with sociologist and New York Times columnist Tressie McMillan-Cottom. Reclaiming beauty would not be about making Black women as beautiful as white women. Mm-hmm. It would be about divesting beauty from capitalism so that it is democratically available to all people Mm -hmm. in a way that does not foreclose their individual ability to flourish. That episode is called Who Gets to Be Beautiful in America? And you can find it in our archives. But today, we're going to hear Tracy talking to someone whose place in history is coming into clearer focus as a huge brand works overtime to reinvent itself. I would take a crayon and change the skin color on my paper dolls. (laughs) You would just color them in with, like, brown crayon? Yes, because I wanted them to look like me. Growing up in Spartanburg, South Carolina in the 1950s, Kitty Black Perkins had never even seen a Black baby doll. And the dolls she did get to play with were hand-me-downs from her mom's employers who were white. Even years later, when she did come across Black dolls, they didn't do much for her. They were not pretty dolls. They were just kind of, kind of there. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing exciting. Mm -hmm. It's kind of hard to relate to a white doll when you're Black. It's amazing how much power one doll can have. Or in Kitty's case, the absence of one. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. It's something we might take for granted today, but Kitty's experience of growing up as a Black child in the United States was nearly universal. We know that because in the 1940s, two psychologists, Kenneth and Mamie Clark, designed a series of experiments known as the doll test. They would present white dolls and black dolls to black children and ask them questions. Which doll did they want to play with? Which doll was the prettiest? Which doll was the nicest? Two out of three of the children rejected the brown dolls as being negative and bad, etc. The researchers found that these children were learning the lessons a white supremacist society 
was determined to teach them. We found that uh, black children knew that they were different, that they had lower status. They, they internalized in the development of their own self-image uh, these negative stereotypes of the society and the uh, majority. One of Kitty's earliest memories has to do with exactly this. When I was five years old, my mom had taken me to S.S. Cress's department store. We were near the bathroom. My mom had to go to the ladies' room, and she said to me, I will be back, stand right here. And she went into a tiny bathroom, and the label on the front was colored. And right next to it was a larger bathroom, and it said white. In between the two was this porcelain water fountain. I was standing there because I wanted some water. And so this lady uh, came up to me, this white lady, and she said to me, she said, honey, you want some water? I said, yes, ma'am. So she picked me up and held me over the water cooler so that I could drink some of the cool water. And then after that, she put me down. And then this man came over to her and started really bawling this lady out because she let this little black kid drink water from the water cooler. Now, those are things that you don't forget. I have to tell you that when I came to Los Angeles, my self-esteem was very low. Mm-hmm. And it had to do with where I lived when I was growing up. And I get off the plane and I see all these beautiful women. So the first thing I did, because I was so country, <laughs> mm-hmm. you should have seen how I was dressed. <laughs> first thing I did was I enrolled in a public speaking class and I started attending a modeling Really? Now, it wasn't to model, Mm -hmm. but it was to just better myself so that I would fit in. Mm. It was because when I was home, it's like I would see these these beautiful white girls. And it's like, of course, I wanted to look like that. Mm. And I think that that in itself is one reason that a lot of black girls preferred the white dolls. Yeah. Because of the way they were treated and all of that. And um, I have to tell you, it's something that, that, that sticks with you. Ironically, Kitty found a career where looks matter more than anything. Fashion. One day, she answered an anonymous classified ad. Turns out the job was designing dresses for Mattel's iconic blonde doll, Barbie. The instructions that I got from the recruiter was just make sure that the doll is beautiful and bring her back and the pattern. The recruiter told Kitty not to think about how much it would cost the company to produce the dresses she designed. So she didn't. 
But then she was rejected because her designs were too extravagant. I was. I also said, you know what, I'm just not going to let it go. Mm-hmm. So I called back and asked for another chance. And instead of doing one outfit, mm-hmm. I did six. <laughs> they told me that they usually place their new hires on probation for three months. Mm-hmm. I was hired on the spot. And all six outfits were put into production that year. I was so glad that I did not take no for an answer. At that point, the mid-1970s, Barbie had already been criticized for a litany of sins, for promoting unrealistic body standards, for sexualizing young girls, for being too blonde and too white. Hey, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Ken. Hi, Ken. But in the Barbie land of today, depicted in the trailer for the new Barbie movie, we see Barbies portrayed by actors of different shapes, sizes, colors, and abilities. But the first step towards a more inclusive Barbie started with the first Black Barbie, and that's where Kitty Black Perkins comes in. Kitty was the toy company's first Black designer. Mattel had been making Black dolls since the 1960s, but they weren't Barbie. They were named Francie or Christy, sidekicks to the main character. And they were basically white dolls painted brown with narrow noses and thinner lips. So two years later, when Kitty pushed to make a Black Barbie, she wanted this Barbie to have the name Barbie and not just be an accessory in order to really, really be recognized as a true Black doll, I felt that it needed the name of Barbie. I felt that she really, really needed to stand on her own. And that was the whole reason for giving her a totally different look. There weren't a lot of textures available, but we tried to find the, the closest texture to Black hair. As we did, the very first prototype I did, I took eyelashes mm-hmm. and glued them on to the ball head mm-hmm. to come up with the short look. And that's how I sold it to the company. Yeah. I gave her short natural. Like a curly afro, yeah. And I worked with a designer in hair design to come up with a as short a natural as I could get. Uh, She was also black, so she understood black hair. Yeah. (laughs) I didn't want it too full, but I didn't want it to look like, you know, she was bald head. And I worked with our sculpting team to do the wider nose, the fuller lips, Mm -hmm. so that the features would be closer to a black person instead of you know, the narrow, skinny nose and, you know, the keen features that Barbie has. Mm-hmm. Gave her a slim silhouette instead of a huge ball gown, which is what we usually put on Barbie. There was, uh, <laughs> there was a lot of controversy about the skin color. Of course, you want to please everybody, but because um, Black people come in so many shades, you're going to leave somebody out. So what I tried to do was choose a color that was kind of in the middle, something that was comparable to the majority 
of black people. And of course, I got some controversy around the length of the hair mm-hmm. because it wasn't long locks like Barbie had. But I kind of ignored all of that because I felt good about the product because I am a black woman, and I kind of knew what I like. Well, speaking of that, being a black woman and knowing what you like, like, how much of you did you put into her? Was there, like, things from the way you dressed or the way you styled your hair that you put into Barbie? At the time, I was wearing short natural. Uh (laughs) (laughs) So I I guess you could say I did put a little bit of me in it. Yeah. Uh, I liked to show a little bit of skin, which is why I did the wrap skirt. She has a red bodysuit with the doman sleeve and cut out on the sleeve and a gold necklace that's attached to the bodysuit. I really love the way Diana Ross dressed, mm-hmm. that kind of look. So um, I kind of put it together the way I would dress. Part of the fun of Barbie is that, you know, she's an adult, but only the fun parts of being an adult. (laughs) You know, my favorite thing that I learned while doing research was that um, the first Barbie dream house didn't even have a kitchen because why would Barbie need to cook? (laughs) You know, she got no kids. She got no husband. (laughs) Like, it's total fantasy. Yeah. Barbie gets to live this life that... A lot of Black women don't. You know, I I was wondering if, like, the fact that you were creating a Black Barbie who could also have this fantasy life, was that something that resonated with you? Like, have this Barbie that could do whatever she wants, including drink whatever from whatever water fountain she wants to? Oh, absolutely. And I have to tell you, the whole time that I was working for Mattel, I was living the fantasy. Because I would see the men on the floor playing with little Hot Wheels and women playing out situations and stuff. And one thing that really gave me a lot of ideas is getting down on the floor and seeing a whole different perspective mm-hmm. and playing with the doll in that way and, and all of that. It was just wonderful. Mm-hmm. Then when I leave Mattel every day, It's like, of course, I have to go back to reality because I had a family and, you know, kids and all of that. But it was a nice little release to to be able to do that. It's almost like you got to have like a little second childhood again. Oh, absolutely. Coming up. One of the things that I discovered was it was hard to really tell and measure the impact of Black Barbie. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. Black Barbie hit toy stores in February 1980, Black History Month. 
This was the era of Saturday morning cartoons with toy commercials punctuating every break. Special, give them a Hot Wheels construction site. A CNSA talking learning system for your child. Crusher comes like this. New from Mattel. But the little kids eating cereal in their pajamas and watching Scooby-Doo wouldn't even know that Black Barbie existed. Because as far as anyone can tell, Mattel didn't run any advertising for her. One of the things that I discovered was it was hard to really tell and measure the impact of Black Barbie. Legeria Davis is the director of the documentary Black Barbie. It premiered at South by Southwest this spring. We didn't discover much marketing materials for it. Like, mm-hmm. she was a success despite not having the marketing behind her, which I think, you know, actually speaks to the need for it at that time. Yeah, that's so interesting. So Mattel um, went through all this trouble of making a Black Barbie, but then didn't run commercials for the Black Barbie. You know, it just sort of put it out and that was it? Yeah, I mean, I think we're all kind of dialed into and aware of what it means to be undervalued or to be made to feel like there isn't the demand or the audience for a certain product. That whole disconnect speaks to how, in my words, unimportant it was to the company. Hmm since they didn't move forward in a way that was as intentional with marketing. So Mm -hmm. if she were able to be successful without spending marketing dollars, then that's profit that they're looking at. Do we even know how many Black Barbies sold that year? It's very challenging to even Mm -hmm. have an understanding of that because Mm -hmm. it wasn't tracked, at least Internally, they may have, but those documents aren't released to the general public. The same year Black Barbie was introduced, Hispanic Barbie was also released. But while Black Barbie was designed with the modern chicness of Diana Ross, Hispanic Barbie looks trapped in time. She kind of looks like Catherine Zeta-Jones from Zorro, and I'm being completely serious. You should just go Google it right now. She's got this white blouse, a full red skirt, and a black shawl to wear over her shoulders. My producer, Alana, who's Puerto Rican, says she looks like a widow from Seville. But Barbies are also now available in different body types, including tall, petite, or curvy, with wider hips and thighs and a tummy that sticks out a little. There are Barbies who use wheelchairs and Barbies with the autoimmune disorder vitiligo. And just this year, Mattel introduced a Barbie with Down syndrome. But with all these new Barbies, have we really expanded who gets to be beautiful, who gets to live in the fantasy, and who's really at the center of the story? Here again is doll designer Kitty Black Perkins. Who is Barbie? Yeah. Who is Barbie to you? Barbie, like I said, is to me, it's a fantasy. For me, it was a total, total fantasy world. She was always perfect, mm-hmm. and we strive to be perfect. Kitty saying that Barbie is always perfect made me realize that despite all this representation, Barbie is still expected to uphold certain beauty standards. For example, Kitty told me this little detail about designing the body for Black Barbie. When I did Black Barbie, of course, we could have gone with a different, totally different body shape. 
But the reason I didn't want to do that is because I didn't want to stray too far away from what Barbie herself was. To me, Barbie isn't about being perfect. The fantasy is about getting to do whatever you want, despite not being perfect, whatever that means. Like, I can't sing, but my Barbie was the lead singer in a band. I hated math and science in school, but the Barbies I played with were pediatricians and nurses. So if she's meant to be perfect, can Barbie really be anyone? You know, one thing that I was thinking about is that, you know, Mattel has done all this work to create all these different Barbies. And in the movie, you're going to see all these different Barbies from, you know, that look all these different ways. But the Barbie who's who's in the center is still the white Barbie. Did you ever worry that even with, like, creating the black Barbie, the Latina Barbie, whatever, like, nobody would really ever think of them as Barbie in the same way they thought of the white Barbie as Barbie? Um, the way I look at it is the the one that comes out first is usually the trailblazer or the, mm-hmm. the you know, and when you mention Barbie, that's the first thing you think about. You think about the white Barbie because she was number one. And because um, all of these other Barbies came later, uh, it's it's just icing on the cake. But the the cake is the staple. It's it's white Barbie. Yeah. Like she kind of set the standard for what the Barbie was going to be. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I have to say that for me that, I don't know, I guess I'm just a little sad by that, by that Barbie in some ways, was always the same, even if you make all these different kinds of Barbies. Well, I have to tell you, I know it is a little sad, but it's true. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's like she was number one. Mm-hmm. You know, the one with the, the black and white bathing suit on. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's it. About 10 years after Black Barbie... Kitty got to design a new line of fashion dolls at Mattel. Shiny is here. Shiny, shiny. You walk the smile. You got The marvelous world of Shiny. You're everything I want to be. The dolls were supposed to be African princesses. They were Shiny, Asha, and Michelle. Shani means marvelous in Swahili, and Asha means life. And Nichelle was named after Star Trek actress Nichelle Nichols. Asha was the lightest doll, Shani was in the middle, and Nichelle was the darkest. And that, that particular line really only lasted a few years. And, and then they did kind of dissolved that, and those characters went in as accessories to Barbie again. Yeah. Yeah, was that disappointing? Um, it was in that it didn't last as as long as I thought it would. It did not get the response that Black Barbie did. And I think it had to do with the name. Shawnee was a chance for a series of Black dolls set apart from the Barbie universe. Black dolls that would create their own stories and go on their own adventures. 
Because when I look at the Barbie movie trailer, it's obvious we still don't think of Black Barbie or Barbie who uses a wheelchair or Asian Barbie or really any of the other Barbies as the real Barbie. None of them get the starring role. Maybe with Shawnee, we could have had a different kind of fantasy. You know, like, what would Shawnee's dream house look like? Where would Shawnee hang out with her boyfriend, Jamal? Would Shawnee be going to see Beyonce this summer? Of course she would. Jamal would pick her, Asha, and Nichelle up in his gold convertible and drop them off at the arena where they have floor seats. But Jamal isn't staying, of course, because he's just Jamal. And she's Shawnee. to WNYC Studios correspondent Tracy Hunt and to Alana Casanova-Burgess and Mike Kutchman for producing and mixing this episode. If you want to hear more on Beauty from Tracy, check out her interview with Tressie McMillan-Cottom, author of Thick, which is linked in our show notes for this episode. And if you can't get enough Barbie history, check out the Barbie tapes from our friends at the LA Made podcast for more on the iconic doll. Okay, Thanks so much for listening, and I will talk to you on Sunday. Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting, but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged.